One of the most unpopular aspects of Christianity today for the modern person is the very idea of missions or missionaries. Whenever Christian missions are depicted in uh, literature or depicted in a movie or on stage in a play. You know, those depictions are universally negative and, and condemned, uh, sometimes bitterly so. I think that's... The stigmatization of missions is uh, why it's becoming increasingly common for Christians to opt for a, a privatized faith. You know, I'm a Christian... But I don't want to impose my beliefs on anyone else. My Christianity is a private thing. But is it really? David Platt is the director of the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, which I think is, you could tell me if I'm wrong, um, Zach, but that's the largest like missions agency virtually in the world today. Um, he was he's a popular author and was previously a megachurch pastor in Birmingham. He gave a talk at the 2013 Gospel Coalition's Missions Conference, so what, five years ago, entitled, Why the Great Commission is Great. It's a very powerful and provocative uh, talk, and I'll see if I can't provocate with it here at the beginning of my sermon. Multitudes, he says, uh, multitudes of professing Christians live as if they believe the following, that Jesus has saved me, Jesus' teachings work for me and my family, but who am I to tell my neighbor or my coworker what he or she should believe? Who am I to go and tell other people in other nations that their beliefs are wrong and my belief is right? And even more, who am I to tell anyone that if they don't believe in what I believe, they're unforgiven sins will damn them to hell. He goes on, well, I certainly can identify that with that train of thought. I think back to standing one day in a sea of people in the region of northern India. If you've ever been to India, uh, think lots and lots and lots of people, 1.2 billion of them, over 600 million of whom live in the northern portion of India. Crowded streets and urban slums, Surrounded by seemingly endless villages span the countryside. More people live under the poverty line in India than the entire population of the United States. And the church that I partner with, with whom uh, we've worked uh, in northern India, estimate that only one half of one percent of the people there are Christians. In other words, 99.5 percent of the people there have not believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. I looked around one day in that crowded sea of people and thought, who am I to travel all the way over here to tell these people what they need to believe? Who am I to tell them that all of their gods, Hindu gods, the Muslim god, Buddhist gods, Sikh, that they're all false because Jesus is the only true God? Who am I to tell these 597 million non-Christians that if they don't turn from their sin and trust in a savior, they will face God as their judge. It felt, it feels so extremely arrogant and extremely unloving and uncomfortably brash to claim that 597 million Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and Sikhs around me at that moment will go to hell if they don't confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10.9. I felt that, 
And I totally agree. Such a claim would be absolutely arrogant, unloving, and brash. Completely brash. Unless what? Unless that claim is true. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then we, of all people, should be most pitied. And the last thing that we want to do in this world is to go around having other people believe in something that is an outright lie. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then yes, it is outright foolishness to go around the world telling people that they need to follow him. But if he rose from the dead, if he paid the price for man's sin, if he conquered sin, death, and the grave, if those claims are true, then going around the world and telling people about it is probably the only thing that does make sense. If he did rise from the dead, then it is the height of arrogance to sit quietly by while 597 million Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs in northern India don't know anything about it, are never given the chance to realize it, never, never discover that there is a creator who is also a savior. I'd go so far as to say it's the epitome of hate to not sacrifice our lives to spread this good news among all the people we know and among every people group of the planet. And so he finishes a provocative message with these provocative words. All of us, church members, church leaders, and pastors, all of us need to ask ourselves the question, do we really believe this gospel? Has God raised him from the dead? and bestowed on him all authority in heaven and on earth. Because that, of course, is how the Great Commission begins. All authority. Let's read it here. Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. What is he saying? He is saying that the world we enter into is a place where every person, location, and thing is under the authority of the risen Christ. And that we will never step on a speck of dust. We will never speak to a human being over whom Jesus doesn't claim to have authority. I mean, and so part, when we say a huge part of the Great Commission is just helping people to recognize this, that he's the risen one. Zach uh, told us yesterday that there are like 3.15 billion people unreached in the world today with no access to the gospel, which is, an, which is a tragedy of incredible proportions. The job is not done, he said. The need is still acute. And do we believe the gospel? And do we know why the Great Commission is great? Highly recommend you listen to the talk. He does a lot better job than I do. (laughs) 
But for the remainder of the sermon, what I'd like to do is briefly highlight some different facets of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is um, pretty familiar to most of us. And some of these highlights are fairly obvious ones, and others I think are less so. But let's begin with what the Great Commission is not. The commission is not go win converts. The commission is not go get decisions for Jesus. The mandate that is given to the leaders of the church, the apostles, is to go make disciples. And that word disciple, you think about first century Jewish context, I mean, there was a pretty well-defined understanding of what a disciple was to these Jewish men that he's speaking to. You know, um, a disciple is literally someone who sits at the feet of a rabbi. I mean, that's what you do, did when you were a disciple. You sat at the feet of the rabbi, and you hung, you clung to every word that the rabbi spoke. One of the phrases that they used back then was, uh, to be a disciple, you must be covered in your rabbi's dust. What do they mean by that? It means that you would follow your rabbi wherever he went. You know, his life became your life. Uh, the, the dusty floors of uh, Palestine, um, when he kicked up dust, it was on you. And it wasn't just, hey, my rabbi has a, a few good things to say. Yeah, I kind of take it or leave it. I mean, when you were a disciple of a rabbi, I mean, his take on life was your take on life. His view of the world became your view of the world. I mean, we're thinking, when he says go and make disciples, what we're doing is summoning people to acknowledge the authority of Christ and, and inviting them to, to be lifelong learners underneath Christ. So this is not go to other countries and get them to pray the sinner's prayer. As one teacher I heard put it, Jesus wants, he wants Athenian disciples. He wants Corinthian disciples. He wants Roman disciples. Later on, he's going to want... Japanese disciples and Haitian disciples and Rohingyan disciples. And lest it go unsaid, and this would have been radical for them, he wants women disciples. Because that's something that you didn't do. Rabbis did not have women disciples back in that day. But he's saying, all people everywhere, I'm calling them into something that's just much, much richer and deeper than simply what you and I associate when we hear the word convert, conversions. Secondly, something I never realized this week about the Great Commission is that there are not one, two, or three, but there are actually four alls, A-L-L, if you can't understand me, alls, of the Great Commission. It begins, number one, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. Number two, You're to go and make disciples of all the nations. You are to teach them all that I have commanded you by. And then fourth and finally, and lo, I'll be with you. I will be with you always. The last 20 years or so, some people have advocated translating verse 19 in the Great Commission differently. Uh, They point out that the Greek word here, if you want to look at, I mean, you know it, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. Um, The Greek word here for go if you're interested in grammar at all, is a participle. It's, uh, it can be translated as you are going. Uh, and so the kind of the idea is as you're going through your, your daily walk of life, um, make disciples. 
make lifelong uh, learners of Jesus along the way. That was how the the verse actually um, was taught that way. Anybody else get that interpretation? No. The the problem with it is it it's just wrong. <laughs> There's a reason why they've translated this the same way for two thousand ish years, and because what ends up happening is the participle there, while it is. It's a present participle. Uh, or, oh, sorry, sorry. It's it's not a present participle. It is a, a past participle. So the way, if you were to woodenly translate verse 19, it would actually read, after you have gone. But always these past participles in the Gospel of Matthew get translated simply as a command, go. So he is saying go. He's not simply saying make disciples. He is saying go. And that's exactly what these man, men did. It wasn't about just going along in their daily course of life and, and happening to make disciples. Thomas went to India. Andrew went to southern Russia. Levi went to Egypt and Ethiopia. Thaddeus went to Armenia. John went to Greece. Simon the Zealot went to Beirut. Simon Peter went to Samaria and was later martyred in Rome. They went outside of Jerusalem to the rest of the earth. And the reason why this is significant, so you, how many apostles did we have? We had 12 apostles. How many tribes of Israel in the Old Testament? We had 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus picks 12 guys to be you know, the foundation of his, of his church, I mean, he's obviously, he's mimicking the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's saying, I am creating a new people. Um, this, is a, this is a new Israel, so to speak. You know, you think back to Israel's life in the Old Testament. She was largely, she was not a go people. She was not a go people. She was, a large, she was largely a let's not get polluted by the nations of the world kind of people. Um, let's keep a safe distance from them and not you know, buy into their false gods and so forth. For the most part, the, the, the conversions that take place in the Old Testament are because people come to Israel. It's not because Israel goes. It's because Rahab comes, and Ruth comes, and Naaman. All of those are people who come to mind. In the Great Commission, Jesus is reversing the direction of the people of God. He's saying we must be proactive. We must be the people who go. We must go to places that are unfamiliar and meet with people and cultures that are very different than our own. I started out the missions conference yesterday by reminding everyone, uh, or maybe just, it wasn't a reminder, maybe it was just telling them for the first time, that our word for mission, the Latin root for that is missio, which means sent. And, and we're supposed to have a, a, a sense of being sent. Why? Because that is the trinity the Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sent these apostles to the uttermost parts of the world. And he just makes so blastedly obvious the fact that we need to go. Now, somebody can object to me and say, well, Brad, you, it was given to the apostles. It's not given to me as an individual Christian. Well, it was given to the apostles insofar as it was given to the church. And, and just because the Go is a church community project, I don't think you could make the case that that exonerates you from your responsibility to go. Shouldn't there be, shouldn't there be some Go component to every Christian life? Shouldn't there be something that you 
could look at, that at the end of the day, you could look Jesus in the face and say, I am going. Um, It may look kind of lame, and it may not be very good, but there is some go component in my life that takes me to places and people that are very different than me, it's in situations and environments that I'm very uncomfortable in. If there's no go in your life, that you, I would assume, I hope you have a compelling reason why there's not. Because, you know, go, sense, it's the nature of the people of God, it's the nature of the Trinity. Uh, thirdly, the Great Commission shows us that the way to make disciples is twofold. Disciples are made through baptism. <laughs> You baptize them. Uh, Baptism is the doorway into the Christian community, into the local church. So disciples are made through baptism. And then what what do you do once you get them inside your church? You're you're to instruct them. But the teaching bar that Jesus gives these guys is really high. (laughs) He says, teach them all that I've ever commanded you by. Like, how long does it take to learn all that Jesus ever taught in the scriptures? How long does that take? It takes a lifetime. That's a, that's a heavy, that's a tall task to teach people um, that much. That's what's supposed to take place in the local church if we're doing our jobs well. And um, Here's a story I learned this week. In the late 1980s, you remember when the Iron Curtain came down in the former Soviet Union. Uh, at that time, there was unprecedented openness to the gospel ministry in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And there, there was a sense among American churches, if you remember, recall this, that like this window has been opened for us by God, but it's not going to stay open forever. There was a sense of urgency back in the 80s and early 90s that we've, we've got to, we should capitalize on this. So that's what happened. The United States churches sent tons and tons of people and money and Bibles and books and resources to Russia and Eastern Europe like it never happened before. And we heard back from their wonderful stories of, of conversions, one-on-one evangelism encounters, street evangelism, tent revivals, I mean, the whole nine yards. Well, the long story short, we are about two to three decades after that event. And what is largely conceded by missiologists today is simply the fact that most of that was for naught. Most of it was, um, was for naught. Because we went over there to win c- converts, but what we didn't do is plant indigenous churches. And what we ended up, I mean, with the Soviet Union, we, we had people who made decisions for Christ. They, you know, they signed up for Jesus. But then what we did is we handed them back over to the Russian state church, where there was like no spiritual vitality and health, health in, a, in, in Russian state Eastern Orthodoxy. We handed them over to that. And at the end of the day, they didn't have strong churches in their local communities where they would be discipled. And so where I'm going with this is, you know, the Great Commission is normally fulfilled through planting and growing local churches. That's not just a pastor who's saying that. That's When Jesus says that you are to baptize and instruct them, you're baptized, you come into a, a, a local church that has a real authority structure with real doctrinal boundaries that meets at a real place and that hopefully is contextualized in a local environment, in a local community, and and done so well. 
the Great Commission is not about making Lone Ranger Christians, because every time in the history of missions that we've tried to do that, it's failed. Lone Ranger Christians end up dying if they don't have a church. One of the things I, I really appreciate about our denomination's mission board, Mission to the World, is their attitude is we are all about working with local indigenous churches. So, for instance, did you tell them about Costa Rica? Okay, so we're in Costa Rica right now, um, working with... Um, why are we in Costa Rica? We're the Presbyterian Church in America. Because local cr- churches in Costa Rica said, come on over and help us. We need you to help us fulfill these sp- certain kinds of tasks. Um, help us strengthen and plant new churches. We're talking about sending a medical missions team to Bangladesh in July. Their job is to work with a, a displaced minority group from um, um, Myanmar, the Rohingya, who are in refugee camps. And one of the, the pictures from the missions conference that I, I love, it was my favorite picture of the whole conference, is the picture of a bus with a sign on the front of it from one of our Bangladeshi pastors, and it said, Love your neighbor as yourself. The Presbyterian Church of Bangladesh welcomes the Rohingya here. Uh, and what they did is they drove these buses with these signs on the front of them into the refugee camps and brought medical um, supplies and, and so forth. And what they're doing is using medical mercy mission ministry in order to eventually, we hope, open doorways for planting local indigenous churches you know, among the Rohingya. But I mean, NDW, as best I can tell, really cares about planting local churches. And that's what, um, I think that's what the Great Commission says. Tom and Libby Little were college students who attended the 1967 Urbana Missions Conference in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois. Urbana is a, it might be the biggest missions conference. It's been going for like the last 50 or 60 years. On the final day of Urbana in 67, a call was given to the students in attendance to serve in global missions. Libby's hand went up immediately. Tom uh, his hand also went up, but rather deliberately and slowly because he wanted to count the cost. After studying optometry and becoming an optometrist, the couple headed to Afghanistan where they raised their three daughters and endured three civil wars. In 2011, when Tom and his uh, uh, group of doctors were traveling uh, along in a remote valley, they were attacked and murdered by the Taliban. Libby and the children then returned to the States, and she was invited to speak at Urbana, uh, Urbana's 2012 conference. And she began her talk by saying these words. She said, Tom didn't die in Afghanistan in 2011. He died at Urbana in 1967. Why does one person kind of get that and another person doesn't? What is, I was trying to think of the psychology of why do some people, they sense the call to mission. <clears throat> and uh, um, we say, well, maybe God was calling them and he wasn't calling the rest of us. That's probably, there's an element of truth to that. But I mean, why, how, how does a person start to sense it, start to feel it? And I think the answer in part is they, they have different dreams than us. Most of us, when we dream about the future, we dream about retiring with savings, 
And we dream about playing with grandchildren and playing golf and, and sipping pina coladas. And when, when, these, when they dream, of, the others dream about the future and missionary dreams about the future, they dream about people in Afghanistan coming to see Christ. I think, I think it does come, back, come down to some like, deeper stuff inside of us. Like, what do you really dream for? What do you really dream for? Um, you're only going to write Jesus a blank check and tell him to cash it if, uh, if your dreams are different than the American dream. It's kind of funny because we spend so much effort on the American dream. But, I mean, who of us, as we live the American dream, who of us, like, do this, this life and say, this is the most th- fulfilling life and dream I could ever imagine? Like, the American dream is okay. It's pretty good. But, I mean, nobody, nobody steps back and says, this is, the, this is the, the highest life that I can imagine. And yet, it's the one that most of us pursue. So one of the things I'd like you to do, piggybacking on the Sunday school next door earlier this morning, you know, our denomination has this 1% initiative. Leaders in our church have believed that God is calling us to raise up within our small denomination 1% of our, our, congrega- our, our members to be new missionaries. That would be 2,877 new missionaries. And what I'd like you to do is just, just pray that people your kids, um, your friends would dream differently, would dream for something like that. Finally, the Great Commission can feel overwhelming because there are so many people and there's so much left to be done. It's especially overwhelming for those of us who are already feeling swamped by life. I mean, when we hear the call to go to the nations, we're like, I'm having trouble tying my shoes in the morning, Lord. I can barely keep my head above the water and I'm to go to the nations. Here's one piece of small encouragement I'd like to leave you with. Did you know that the Great Commission was not Jesus' last words to his disciples? They are the last words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, but they are not the last words that he gave to his disciples. The disciples, the last words he gave was was the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you by... And the last thing I want to tell you guys is not yet. Not yet. You need to wait. Don't go anywhere, he actually said. He said, don't leave the city of Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere until my father's, my, the present, the gift that my father is going to send finally comes upon you. He says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you before you go out into the mission field. And I think that's a great reminder to us that uh, one of the main reasons we experience ministry burnout is because we are trying to do it in our own strength instead of the strength that the Spirit supplies. Jesus did not tell us to go and do the Great Commission for him. He told us to wait for the Spirit that would empower us to do so and to kind of yield ourselves to the Spirit's power as he would do the Great Commission through us so those of you who attended the missions conference, you know, you were given a lot of great information. Maybe your response to all of that information is simply, okay, I will wait, Lord. I am available to do whatever you wish, and I will go wherever you want me to go, but right now, 
I am just waiting for the supply of your spirit to direct and to lead and to give me what's necessary to accomplish the task because I'm overwhelmed and I, I can't do it on my own. Few things seem more offensive than the idea of missions. Just remember that it was Jesus' idea. We go. And it's Jesus' spirit that will be with us to the end. If he is the risen, if he has risen from the dead, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, which means the mission will succeed. His salvation will spread to the entire globe. And his, his spirit will sustain that effort. So all saints, let's keep praying. Let's keep giving. And let's keep going in the power of God's spirit. Amen.